out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family and is sponsored in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Sad Men for Lonely Women, because at some point or another, somebody stopped loving you. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast, episode 163, The Legend of Bagger Vance. It's part of our Fresh Prince February movie marathon in which we look at the films of one William Willard J.F. Smith. And uh, why not? And <laughs> is that really his name? No, I made that all. Oh up. God, I I was kind of hoping that was his real name. He's going to get lots and lots of various and sundry different uh, initials over the course of this month. But we are honoring Black History Month by looking at a black star auteur, one William Jefferson Smith, and a uh, member of Jefferson Airplane. I believe he founded it. Did he not? No. Just kidding. No, Dustin. I'm, I, yeah, you're, you just you keep are. saying words, old man. I think we should just <laughs> go on with our show. <laughs> and uh, so we need to go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brains. Across the table, ma'am, who are you? My name's Alexander Bohannon, and oh, Jesus, I've died and gone to hell <laughs> by being here. Yeah. That, that's, that's. I mean, this movie made me feel like I was in hell. So. Oh. Likewise. Shot. But, I mean, let's continue. Shots fired. Okay, to my right, sir, go ahead and identify yourself. Hi, my name's Caleb Masters, and just uh, keep on swinging until you're part of the hole. The hole, the hole, the hole. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's Dustin Sells, and guys, this isn't getting embarrassing. It's been embarrassing for some time now. And uh, we are so glad to be talking about The Legend of Bagger Vance. At least I am, because it's a host pick uh, selection, and I host picked this. So uh, there you have it. And you! Well, okay, we have to say that it's kind of our fault, because we, we implemented, I went back and thought, because... We did a marathon listener called You Don't Know Jack, in which we did films with Jack in the title of them, because why not? And Arthur picked not a film with Jack in the title, but it had, it was Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which has Captain Jack Sparrow. So then I realized later, after we decided Bagger Vance, that uh, we were holding up Dustin to a stricter standard than we did anyone else. Because he was going to pick a movie that Will Smith produced or something. That is correct. I was going to pick a film called Saving Face, which is about a Chinese-American lesbian woman and her very, very conservative mother. And uh, it would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. Um, but we We'd didn't. You guys put the kibosh on that, and therefore you get The Legend of Bagger Vance. Dear oh listener, blast you, Bagger Vance. My boat, I just like hit a bogey, like straight up. <laughs> make you do that. So, I got uh, a bogey down. We need to warn you, though, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. We're going to have a uh, synopsis from the voice of the Dollar Theater slash cinema, Mr. Dalton Stewart, and then we are going to move on into our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then it's spoilers ahoy, because you got to spoil in order to really do analysis. And so we are going to warn you right here and right now who's going to win the match uh we will name those people uh based on what happens at the end of the film but not until after we get down to business so you have now been warned but without any further ado dalton stewart voice of the cinema let's hear that synopsis please a down and out golfer attempts to recover his game and his life with help from a mystical caddy Ooh. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart, Man, and go away. That's a that that dollar theater is getting cheaper and cheaper every day. I tell yeah, you what, that's probably why the dollar theater in Norman closed. <laughs> oh, why'd you guys all have that? Like you guys are just as mean to him as I am. I mean, it's just a little sad, you know. It has reopened though, so that's oh exciting. well, so maybe Dalton's voice is resurrected. Dalton's it. back in business, boys. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh goodness. So there you go, dear listener. Let's go ahead and hear those quick thumbs up, thumbs down, initial reaction reviews. Let's keep it tight and keep it right, guys. And let's hear what you have to say. Mr. Caleb Masters, what do you got to say? Yeah, Bagger Vance is from an entirely different era of filmmaking when sports were highly romanticized. Uh, I actually grew up watching a number of films like this because my dad was... My dad doesn't like a lot of movies, I'll be honest. He really doesn't. But something he likes to watch a lot of, that's sports movies. Highly sentimental sports movies. So this reminded me... A lot of like the old sports movies I watched, although those were usually related to football or baseball. Same, this is the same type of thing. Uh, so it also this film just outside of romanticizing a sport romanticizes the the deep south. Uh, and I can I, I can say you know having spent uh, you know having family in the deep south and having spent a lot of time here in uh, Oklahoma, there are a lot of Sooners who would probably love this movie if it was about football because this is literally like remember the Titans except for if it's golf uh, with a little less teeth to it. Um, so now I, I think the script of this film is terrible, terrible. I, I think it relies on da- really dumb golf spiritualism to cover up the things that don't make sense. Cause Oh Lord, do things in this movie not make any sense. Uh, you know what? Robert Redford, who I didn't realize directed the movie until the credits were rolling. I was like, Oh my God, Robert Redford directed this movie. We well, you know what Robert Redford, I have the utmost respect for you, sir. I really do. But your direction really made me hate this movie more because not only did you have a dumb script, the way he shot this is so heavy-handed. So heavy-handed. It's about as uh, subtle as a, as, a, as a freight train driving through uh, Cobb, what's-his-name's dream in Inception. Like, it just, bam! I mean, like, just just, st- just stop. I, you're, you're trying to manipulate me. I get that. You could have li- been a little smarter about it or, or done something a little different. It just was so heavy-handed. It, it, it made me upset. I felt like my intelligence, my emotional intelligence was being uh, insulted. And worst of all, it put me in a position where I did not give a damn about any of the characters or anything going on in this film. Uh, as for our boy Will, his performance kind of came across like uh, an SNL parody of where he was playing Morgan Freeman. Uh, something I'm going to mention in my analysis, but he's kind of that uh, magic Negro kind of caricature we've run into um, that I find to be quite detestable. Uh, and the fact that this is actually made in 2000 is doubly shocking. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can't say Will Smith was bad, but he was definitely brought on to do a job. All right. Well, thanks for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Miss <laughs> Alexander Bohannon, what do you have to say? Um, this film is uh, just... Oh, it's bad. I, I like. I mean, it's it's bad and long and painfully boring. Um, I found the use of this framing narrative to be really, really cumbersome and not well executed at all. I don't feel like the movie actually started until maybe thirty minutes in because we have like this big wind up of I was a golfer in my day and here's my story and we get this we get this narration that a lot of the time feels like if if you could mute the dude like he like the story would explain itself a lot of times and if the filmmaker just tried a little harder if the script tried a little harder I feel like his position could be totally removed and 
that he could then just go away because I found him to be so distracting and so over explaining and, and just, I don't feel like that voiceover added anything to the film. Um, you're shaking your head at me, Dustin, but I think you're just like absolutely bonkers because it was just, it was distracting and it insulted my intelligence. And I didn't really appreciate that a lot. Um, and another issue is just like how schmaltzy and feelsy it was. But then at the end of the day, it's so schmaltzy and so feelsy. And so of this era, like Caleb said, like this late 90s, mid 90s era, because it made in 2000. So it's basically the 90s. Um, it's so of this this era that like, but it yet feels so insincere. Like at the same time, it's schmaltz for schmaltz's sake. And, and I don't really believe anyone's performance besides the the kid. I believed his performance. He actually, I felt like he was the only person acting in this movie. Yeah, he gets to be in a movie. He's like, come on, come yeah, on. I, I, get mean, to be, I get to start, I get to be a pretty big character yeah, in this movie. Yeah, yeah and I mean, if, and the Southern accents were all over the place. And I felt like Will Smith's, all, his thing it was relying on these stereotypes and cliches and romanticizing the South and all of these things that now where we are in society, I just feel deeply uncomfortable with. And I didn't like watching this movie at all. And I really just wish I hadn't. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Um, I like this movie a lot because it is the right kind of schmaltzy and sentimental. I, I am one who's often very critical of sentimentality. I am, um, often accusing one Steven Spielberg of that sort of thing, and uh, gets get, gets in the way sometimes. But that being said, I do love the game of golf itself, and uh, you know I, I quote one Hardy Gray Greaves about that. You know it's fun, it's hard, and you stand out there on the green green grass, and it's just you and the ball, and there ain't nobody to beat up on but yourself. It's just like Mister Newman keeps hitting himself with the with the golf clubs every time he gets angry. He's broken his toe two or three times on the count on it. It's the only game where you can call a penalty on yourself if you're honest, which most people are, and there just ain't no other game like it. Uh, there, there is something about golf as a metaphor for life that just works for me. I mean, I like to play the game myself, and it, it, it's um, it's about suffering through trauma. It's it's about working on and keeping on, keeping on, keep playing the game to keep on walking. This film is about a scarred World War One veteran who's trying to find uh, some way back into the real world. It's about post traumatic stress disorder and reintegrating in society, and it does so in a schmaltzy, semi magical way. But uh, for all that intents and purposes, it makes me very happy. So, Dustin, I, 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 that's a fair review. I, but you really think this is less schmaltzy than even Spielberg schmaltzy yeah, is? Because I, this is way yeah, worse I than any. I, dude, I sat through War Horse, and I didn't like that movie for that very reason. But War Horse was not even touching. I mean, this, this is on a whole other level, man. A whole other level of like just schmaltz and emotional manipulation for the sake of un- uh, emotional manipulation. Like it's, it's, it's like not even not remotely... Uh, subversive about it either. It's pretty in your face. So you think that, but you, you think this is less so or done better than Spielberg? One word. Hook. I think I, I still don't done. think I don't I don't think Hook is this bad either. I feel like I mean they're probably close, but I don't 
Uh, and I like Hook a lot, but I mean, Hook Hook's is schmaltzier. Fine. I mean, at least Hook is fun. Maybe that's the thing is like maybe they're schmaltzy at the same level, but Hook is actually interesting and stuff. So well, it's schmaltzy about fantasy literature with which both of you resonate, right. as opposed to schmaltzy about a particular game which neither of you play. I, yeah, I, I mean, I I like golf. I mean, I was raised around it. Like I know how to, how to play and uh, the rules and stuff. I, I just don't play myself. Yeah, I know it's not something I love, yeah. but I, I did, I've gone out on done like day golfing trips on a pretty regular basis. So. Yeah. Well. Let me get real personal then okay. and talk right. about my grandfather uh, oh, for just okay. a moment. Here we go. All right. And uh, yep. who I watched this movie in the theater with. Okay. Who took me every um, day during the week, every summer from the time I was about nine years old until I was about 15 and a half years old to uh, the golf course in the summer. We were members of the uh, state parks uh, golf course. You could buy a membership to that for a family for pretty inexpensive. And we played all the time. And I've played a dog leg that was more dog than leg uh, more than once uh, with my granddad. And so for me, this it, it just resonates, you know, as a metaphor. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, I understand. Like, I felt like the moments of this film that worked the best, um, and this isn't super spoilery, he goes out in the woods to retrieve the ball. And that scene, I was like, I want to watch that movie. Right, yeah, Where yeah. is that movie? Where is that acting? Because I don't feel like that was in any, I mean, yeah, there's the thematic stuff. There's a lot of the thematic things um, from that scene, but I want to watch that movie instead of that crap that I had just suffered through the rest of the film. And then we leave the woods and then we leave that moment and, it, and we don't return to, yeah. I mean, he overcomes and that's great, whatever, but, but the, the PTSD is never, pro- that's like the only scene that's really directly. I mean, it's obvious addressed. that he has it. Right. But, right. But, it, but that's a scene where you actually address it. And you're like, Oh, what's going on with this guy's head? But like Alex said, literally once he picks up the ball and leaves, he, it's done. It's out. And they never re, they never revisit it to that degree in the film after that. All right. Well, fair enough. Dear listeners, so now you know where we stand. We're generally biased against uh, this particular film. Um, we're going to move on, though, because as I look at my watch, it's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> This week's game is our favorite film voiceovers. That's right, our favorite film voiceovers, brought to you this week by Bag of Ants, the legend of Bag of Ants. We hope you like voiceovers because this one sucks. Jack Lemon, I love you. It's I, that's his. This is his last performance. Yeah, yeah it's kind of sad c- considering the ending. Well, in the I mean, like in the context of that ending scene. Yeah. That he, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess that's spoilery, but. Yeah, but that's all right. Um, well, guys, we're going to talk about voiceover as a motif in film. Sometimes it's used very, very badly. We're looking at you, Blade Runner and Harrison Ford. Thanks for not trying. And uh, we're going to talk about sometimes we liked a little voiceover. I go to you first, Caleb Masters. What do you have to say? Oh, Dustin, um, I'm going to call shenanigans on this entire game. <laughs> okay. uh, because because the second you're like, hey, we should do a uh, best voiceover of the game. I said, well, Dustin, the problem with the game is there's not good voiceovers in the film. Uh, and I, I have, I do have something. So I, I'm not going to be a total downer here, but I, I generally feel like nine times out of ten, when VO is used traditionally, uh, it's not effective. It's used to cover up plot holes, uh, tr- uh, trying to. It, it's used to frame the narrative, tell you how, what's going on in the narrative rather than showing you. I think there's a lot of films where you could just as easily have cut it out and it would have worked just as effectively, like Bagger Vance, for instance. And this was Hacker Vance was especially bad. Drug on a really long time, but I mean, just in general, uh, VO voiceover narration not great. Um, generally speaking, now there are some exceptions, but even with the exceptions, I take notes saying that one of two things: 
one, none of my picks are traditional. And two, in some of these, you still could have done it without the VO, and it probably would have been just as, if not more effective. So my picks for the game, though, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, a film that had the big setting of the stage, introducing us to Middle Earth. Uh, we, as we see, uh, you know, you flash back to the big uh, battle uh, with uh, Sauron at the beginning, and they frame that, and then they, and at least they had Galadriel uh, as played by Kate Blanchett in her lovely voice, uh, you know, guiding us through the story. I did really like that, uh, and I do think, you know, it's pretty steep fantasy. Just dropping us into it would have been tough, but hey, uh, Game of Thrones came out, and there was no voiceover narration in that, and guess what? It's mm, arguably better. So, you know. Uh, another one that I, I think kind of fits the same type of bill as the Fellowship of the Ring is Pacific Rim. Uh, again, another instance of VO saying, "Hey, there's this really complex world we're about to drop you into." But because we don't, th- we, because you're the audience, and this is a blockbuster cinema, Hollywood mandates me, Gilmel del Toro, to tell you what's going on for the first 15 minutes, so that you know when you get into the movie. Um, so it chooses as again framing narrative that I think could have been left out. Just drop us in the middle of it and let it go. I would have rather have seen that. It would have been way more interesting. You get to you discover you just, what you find out about the world is through discovery and what the filmmaker is telling us. Again, I do think that particular narration is fun. It, it's kind of a throwback to like the the uh, the anime in which it's inspired by. Um, I will say upon research on this because I actually looked into films films that use VO, and the big exception for me. Uh, is going to be anything with Martin Scorsese. Uh, he does it very, very well, although most of the time it's not done traditionally. As you see with The Wolf of Wall Street, it's VO narration, but that's the, the whole point of the film is it's being told from the perspective of an unreliable narrator, uh, and he breaks the fourth wall regularly. Um, so I don't consider that traditional voiceover narration. It's more of, um, I don't know what you say, it's... It's breaking the fourth wall. It's almost like as if uh, the author of the – I mean, in that case, the author of the book was talking to us. Um, I almost don't count that. I call shenanigans, but I'll say more later. Okay. Um, and then uh, also Goodfellas has a very iconic uh, voiceover uh, narration that is also pretty good. It's not my favorite, but it's, it's pretty good. Um, and lastly, another very non-traditional one because it's a story within a story within a story uh, is the recent 2014 Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, which also uses like layers of voiceover narration. It's one guy telling a story to another guy telling a story to another guy. And yeah, it really works for that movie, but that's the reason that it's done with that movie is because that is trying, the whole point of that film is to articulate the power of storytelling and how it's passed on to ne- the next generation. And notice that with that film, you're, before you get the voiceover narration, you're introduced to each set of characters first. So it's like you get introduced to the characters and their story and what's going on in their story before they go to the next layer. And then you get in their voiceover. So, again, anyway, those would be my picks. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Ms. Alexander Bohanna, what are your selections? So, I, on the group chat for Good Trash Media, I was discussing with my co-hosts that, for me, voiceover is kind of like sound mixing and editing. You only notice it when it's bad. So, I didn't do, like, a whole lot of research in this this game space. But I will um, denote a couple of... um, picks that are pretty recent that I feel like do voice over right, but it's because they're fresh on the brain um, and I liked them. So um, 2015's my favorite film of the year, 
The Big Short does voiceover very well because it has this interesting stuff with um, it gets really meta in its way because it's like this kind of documentary not style. Um, and you have Ryan Gosling um, being an, a character in the film, but knowing that he is narrating the film. And it's very interesting the way that that is pulled off and it never feels uh, too much or um, superficial or just in excess at all. And then I'd also give a shout out to just a re- very recent drop as of last uh, week, uh, Hail Caesar, uh, Cohen Brothers picture of 2016. I feel like M- Michael Gambon uh, does a really great job at, in his voiceover and Caleb's frowning at me. I, I mean, it's Michael Gambon. So you're kind of like, I, I mean, I like you, I didn't, hadn't even really thought about that pick. It's a, uh, I mean, it's Michael Gambon. So he sounds great, but I, yeah. I also think, they probably could have removed it in the film when it doing. Oh yeah, but no, it was, it was fine. It just didn't hurt nor hinder the film. Yes, I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm about at Caleb's level of I give. I'm just kind of like, well, why don't you just like use the story medium to tell your pieces you're trying to convey instead of like doing it in this way? I, I it feels kind of cheaty, but I did feel like that Michael Gambon added certain flavor and made it super Cohen-y. Um, and I feel like that's kind of my attitude towards voiceover in general. I kind of prefer its flavor alt text instead of like, let me tell you about how this world works and who's who and how we're here and all of their internal motivations. Because obviously the people on screen can't act with those internal motivations on their face, even though it's their job. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at about voiceovers. So sorry if that offended you. It offends me not, but I'm going to do something now that I was not planning on doing. This is Dustin's brief defense of the use of voiceover narration. Lay it on us, Pops. Uh, The brief defense that I would want to offer is this, is that voiceover narration fundamentally sets film in the past, as opposed to in media ray, in which you're experiencing the events as the events occur and the immediacy of those events. What narration does is puts the story in the past of the viewer therefore creates sort of the mythic framework of story and creates again that mythological level the metaphorical level on which those stories can speak to the person that they experience and so when voiceover narration happens it's about not necessarily nostalgia but it's certainly about these are things this is something that's legendary this is something that's beyond where we are right now the big short's a great example because it's a legendary example of what's happening in 2008 and so when we're experiencing voiceover narration that is part and parcel of what is happening. Furthermore, voiceover narration does something for film that film has always tr- striven and tried so so desperately to recreate which is the internal internal psychology that we experience in the novel um you don't know the thoughts of people you don't know the actual rational thought out cognitive um again text that is going on inside a uh, given character's head and what voiceover narration does is attempt to cinematically recreate precisely that and and so it becomes more novelistic and more internal in that way. To uh, again, and I, I, there are moments when I hate voiceover. I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not going to say it's always great. But that being said, that is what it exists to do. I mean, I okay, I I like those points. That's that's good stuff. I mean, considering I'd say a prime example of what you're even talking about is 2015's Inside Out. You got that dinner sequence in which 
they are sitting eating dinner and that's all that's happening. But in, you can hear each of the characters, the mother, the father, and the, uh, the daughter's internal monologue and their machinations of their little, um, personified emotions. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really, I do appreciate that. And I feel like, yes, it can be used well. Um, but I think a lot of the times I'm thinking like the walk it's used really superficially and poorly because it's, it's kind of a cheap, easy way to fix things because they didn't get it right. You know, originally they can just, I'm not going to tell their story. I'm going to tell you exactly who I am and why you should care about me and why this thing I'm about to do matters. It, It certainly can be lazy. And there are many, many numerous examples in which it is lazy when that sort of thing happens, though there are times when it is brilliant, when they're trying to elevate the story that's occurring before you on the screen to the level of the fable, to the level of the mythology, to the level of that which instructs us in life. I look no further than film noir which is uh, famous for its use of voiceover narration. I named Fred McMurray's and William Holdman's uh, narration in uh, Double Indemnity as, uh, spoiler alert, McMurray is dying, and he's um, recording his stuff on a cylindrical phonograph, and uh, William Holden reciting from the grave. It's a narr... It's still not used in the way that a lot when, – when I think of voiceover narration, it kind of is. But his thing is you get you get an introduction to – in Double Indemnity before you know what's going on. You get introduced to that character. Like like, like you see him in the context of the present. Like you don't start the film from a narration. Yeah, like, you do. No, 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 because you see him walking and then you see him get to the tape recorder and then he starts talking about his thing. There's an introduction there that this film is being set in the present before it flashes back. I don't know. That, that could be more of a form issue though to your point, so – Okay, well, I mean, I would say that, yes, he does walk in, but for the most part, he yeah. begins by narrating. 80, 85% of that movie, no, 90, 95% of that movie is set in the past. That, that Correct. Rant. I mean, it, it is absolutely the past of that character. And, of course, William Holden is, is, is giving his narration from the grave. He's dead. He's, he's lying face down, floating in a swimming pool, having been shot by Gloria Swanson. And uh, so there's that going on, and again, it gives us uh, this uh, view in a psychology and to what's going on with the character, and I think it's valuable. To Alex's point about narration that you don't notice, she's generally, by and large, correct, but I'm going to give one example that I love, which is a voiceover narration in a a very, very small, little-known, little-seen Denzel Washington film called Fallen, co-starring the great John Goodman. In which the film opens with, and spoilers ahoy, dear listener, don't listen for the next 90 seconds because I'm going to spoil the film Fallen. This, the narration opens with Denzel Washington announcing, let me tell you about the time I nearly died. And then he goes on to tell the story. Turns out the demon that is the supernatural um, uh, animus of the film has gotten into Denzel Washington by the end of the film. And then the narration comes back at the end with a Rolling Stones song working so well. And he says, don't forget, guys, I told you it was the time I nearly died. And the I is not Denzel Washington. The I is the demon speaking with Denzel's voice. And it is brilliant. It can be used very, very well and very, very effectively. And there are moments in which that occurs. And so my selections, again, are Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, and Denzel Washington's Fallen. Uh, for those selections. So there you go, dear listener. That's our gameplay. We'd love to hear your selections for favorites of voiceover narration. We know Dalton would pick uh, Days of Heaven if he were here. Uh, yeah. Or not. <laughs> but, um, and I like the voiceover narration quite a bit in that film. But nonetheless, um, we'd love to hear what you select in all of that. So we, we want to hear those selections from you. But before we do that, we need to talk a little bit about what's coming up next. And we have a, uh, a bit of announcement that we want to make right here 
right now. Hello, dear listener. You are invited to join the Good Trash Media Network for our first annual Oscar live stream party. On February 28th, starting at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, you can join us on Twitch for our coverage and live reactions to what goes down on Hollywood's biggest night. For more information on this event, visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or on GoodTrashMedia.com. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business time. Oh, 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 yeah. That's right, dear listener. And that business in question is analysis. Ms. Alexander Bohannon. What analysis do you bring today? Today, on the day we are recording, is one of the biggest sporting events in, in the Americas, Super Bowl 50. One thing that helps sell butts and seats and helps fuel fervor for the game is the expert crafting of all of the elements surrounding a sporting event. Tonight, there will be promos cut, there will be rivalry, rivalries challenged, and there will be lots of hype generated. In Bagger Vance, we have a brief diegetic conversation about this uh, the construction of meta narratives in sports. Whenever we have the pro- proposition of Hagen to Juna to make exhibition matches that are rigged at the end, basically the, these would be golf games that drive up this hype, but but the end are fixed matches. This movie, and non diegetically, also discusses the use of mer- meta narratives in large sporting events because it's it is itself a demonstration of the meta narrative at work. This film has a lot of sequences shooting golf, but the reason why we, the viewer, are interested in this golf game is due to the surrounding meta narrative that you have, you know, these these sons of the South coming in to play this golf game, and, and then you have the, you know, the homegrown boy coming in, and he's going to redeem himself after not playing for all these years. And each of these uh, three men that are in this this game have their own s- larger story surrounding them, and that's why Charlize Theron's character recruits them because you have um, you know the the Harvard par- professor and academic who is retiring from golf this year, and then you have the ladies' man that always brings all these women to uh, the event because he is just so desirable and and amazing and all this stuff, and then you have uh, Juna who hasn't been seen in so long, and he has this homegrown appeal um for the casual fan the meta narrative is pretty much required for investment in a sporting event and these meta narratives follow similar tropes and similar construction with these larger kind of legendary themes and my argument is that it doesn't really matter what sport it is because these overarching meta narratives and tropes will carry your interest in the sporting event because they're generally universal Um, they will also help you understand what is going on. And to further illustrate my point, I'm going to give you a prime example using one of my favorite sports, Defense of the Ancients 2, or Dota 2, which is a video game esport. 
Now, for you, is that a sport? Yes, it yes, is. It an, is a sport. Is sport. It's okay, it is a sport. It's, it's fine. A we're not gonna we're not gonna discuss uh, esports versus regular sports because that is a discussion for another day. As long as you say regular sports, I'm fine. Yeah, like I say regular sports in air quotes, but I do I am saying esports in this context because you guys, you are intelligent people listening to this podcast at intelligent people at this table with me. And I would, I would haphazard a guess to say that most of you don't care or know about Dota two, but I'm going to set the stage for you for some, I know Caleb. Yeah. You know, you know enough, but I'm going to set the stage for you to tell you a compelling story. It was the last two days of one of the biggest tournaments for Dota two this year. Team Secret, a team made up of all-star players from teams previously disbanded, was to play in the winner's bracket finals of one of the, one of the season's biggest tournaments. The, ta- the game was the, a best-of-three match versus Evil Geniuses, which was yet last year's world champion. Evil Geniuses' original star player, Arteezy, uh, departed from yes his name is RTZ it's his gamer tag um, departed from that team in 2014 to fill the same position on Team Secret's roster at its creation after Team Secret went on to have a lackluster performance RTZ moved back to Evil Geniuses he then obviously he left the team he helped found to go back to the team that won the championship after his, his team he helped make performed poorly Obviously, Sparks obviously flew between these two teams as they went back to the winner's bracket finals as Arteezy is playing against the team he left at one of their most crucial times. So if you understand this, then congratulations. You understand the, one of the meta narratives surrounding a sport that you've probably never seen played or, or know how it is played. And Bagger Vance is similar. Do you know golf? Doesn't matter. Bagger Vance demonstrates to you that if you have a compelling story to construct around a sporting event, that's not just a marketing tactic. It's another method of of constructing a narrative, of telling stories. One thing that film is good at, but sports is also expert at. Sports ball isn't sports ball. It is a battle for life. It is a battle of life or death proportions to crown a winner and to crown champions because we are the champions, my friend. I turn the dear listener only to Thursday, February 11th edition of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, in which he discusses the ramp up to Super Bowl 50, in which there is a great conversation about how you know everything about the lives of those particular players. And so when you're watching the game, you're screaming to yourself, run for your family, you know. Y oh, receiver yeah. X oh, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it, it, it is totally true. It's 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 reasons it's it's reasons like that. A guy who really doesn't really care about the sports ball was super invested in the Tom Brady Peyton Manning rivalry big time. Um, because I was in Indiana at the time, Colts fan, right? So and it's because they they tell a comparing uh, compelling narrative about two guys that don't they like each other, but they're like broken through their rivalry, and you know, and then there's the and then outside of that, it's like what we do when we discuss films around a table. You're breaking down and hyper analyzing the stats and like who said what that one time. No, Alex, totally dead on with that. Yeah, right? huge, and that and that's exactly what. Uh, ESPN and websites uh, like the formerly known Grantland built their, I mean, built their whole business off of. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's storytelling in a different way, using a different medium. And instead of the event you are consuming being the story being told like a play or uh, some kind of drama of, of, of whether the event you're watching is the storytelling itself, um, 
it doesn't matter because you have these characters that are just filling these roles, like the players themselves are filling these roles in order to tell a story outside of it. I mean, that's what wrestling is. I mean, hello. That's like, and to the point, it's also the fact that wrestling is fixed. Like you have like professional wrestling, like not Olympic wrestling. Um, you, you have the WWE constructing these stories. Some of them are really interesting. Some of them are really like, oh my God, really? Um, but, you know, this kayfabe, like overarching universe is is something that's really interesting because they can they can make you care about it and I feel like wrestling is one of the best examples of the meta narrative at work and showing how it also crops up in like real unfixed sports and esports. Yeah, I mean it's just it's depending on what what is it you decide to invest your time into because there's definitely a story there. I mean pro wrestling and esports and ESPN. Um, I mean, just it is. It's like a. It's a. It's a book. Uh, where you, we watch documentaries. It's the same type of thing. You're putting a certain spin and angle on it that make it more interesting. Although wrestling's a little more scripted, I think it, the same yeah. story applies. Though you've got a team you're rooting for because the way the writers wrote those characters. Yeah, and I mean, Dustin, you can say that about your Rangers because you you love you love the baseballs and you love the golf. I mean, I I mean, I like watching golf on TV too because they cut sick promos for like people leading up to, oh, they're going to have, you know, the clean sweep of all the titles this year, you know, the master's jackets and the pomp and circumstance and, and all of those really interesting cinematic moments. Like, yeah, I'm with you on that. And not to get on a tiny soapbox, but this is one of my biggest pet peeves with, um, as we are going into the Super Bowl, I know that um, a lot of my delightful friends um, on Facebook will be saying things about, oh, hey, the sports ball, who cares? Well, I mean, yeah, I used to be one of those people, but I don't feel like they fully realize what sporting events are doing and what they they do in terms of a different medium of storytelling. Sporting events don't have to be your fandom. They don't have to be. You can watch Doctor Who or Power Rangers or Pokemon or whatever you want to do or play video games. Don't care. But just acknowledging that they're a lesser just because they're a different medium of storytelling isn't isn't helping anybody and isn't and it's driving a wedge between you and and a person that you might be able to get along with and maybe even bond in a sporting event with if you just knew this meta narrative thank you very much miss alexander bohannon um dear listener uh for further reference in the cinematic turn with uh sporting events and tying narrative up to that said event check out ridley scott's gladiator in which um, we don't care about guys killing each other in an arena, but we care about Maximus Desmus Meridian. Uh, because, yeah, he's got a family, and he's got vengeance to get, and so there's something going on there. Are you not entertained? I am entertained. Mr. Caleb Masters, do you have any analysis you'd like to bring? Uh, certainly nothing as thorough as what Alex just dropped on, uh, on us right there. Um, but I do think that there's something that you, when you're watching this film, you, you can't get around. And I, I mentioned it in my review. And, and I use this term widely. I am a 20-something-year-old white guy. So I just keep that in reference. I don't use the term lightly because uh, I do find it sounding very derogatory. But I will say there, um, the caricature of the magical Negro is a, a legitimate term uh, for the caricature that uh, – Will Smith plays. And a significant problem in the film. I agree. I mean, it's uh, it's a problem for the film in a lot of ways. Um, not only do I find it extremely racist and derogatory towards black people, because he's the only main black person in that movie other than his uh, little gang of... Yeah. Um, it's a cop-out. I mean, separate from the fact that I, I have issues with how it portrays African-Americans, it also is a huge cop-out for so many plot holes in the film. 
He just has the magical answer. He's the guardian angel who shows up and fixes all the problems. Well, and he is supernatural. I know. And okay. That's, and I hate that uh, about the movie. <laughs> um, so, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, just kind of even get a definition of what is the magical ne- negro. Uh, so the magical negro is typically, but not always, uh, in some way outwardly or inwardly disabled, either by discrimination, disability, or social constraint, which in this case is going to be social constraint, um, oftentimes portrayed as a janitor or a prisoner. Another example of this, you could read it this way, could be Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption, a very similar type of character, at least I thought so, uh, although that film's a lot better. <laughs> um, he has no past. He simply is, uh, appears one day to help the white protagonist, and he usually has some sort of magical power that's vaguely defined, but... but uh, Limited usually to one or two encounters. Uh, and he does this in the film. Will Smith literally walks out of nowhere and he just starts talking to Matt Damon. And he's like, you know, just just swing the ball. Just, swing, you know, be one with the ball. You know, giving all these little sports tips and somehow, like, giving Matt Damon this energy to overcome his PTSD. Uh, and that's the thing. Like, I don't feel like Matt Damon ever struggled through his actual PTSD. He had the, the Will Smith show up and fix it for him. Until the fateful end of the film when he's like, you got this. You're good. I've done my work, my piece, I'm out. Uh, and I think this is a really damaging way to portray any race, but especially when your only man guy is a black guy. It's this weird sort of like mysticism that further separates white and black, uh, white people and African Americans because it, it, it is drawing attention to the fact that this man is African American. He's got some sort of like voodoo, Hindu kind of ideology he's kind of spurting out there. And He's not like any other character in the film and then just disappears. So he is literally there as a plot device, cheapening the potential of that character. I want to know about Bagger Vance. Tell me about Bagger Vance. I mean, I don't, I don't need his whole backstory, but like, what makes this guy what tick? Makes this guy tick? I well, don't know. Bagger Vance isn't a witch doctor, though. He's God. Well, in this, I mean, in, in the I context mean, of this film, I don't think it matters if he is a witch doctor or if he's God. He talks like a witch doctor, which I found to be really annoying. Well, I mean, okay, so he talks totally in Oprah Winfrey sort of like pop spirituality platitudes. I totally give you that, but he's not a character. He's not a human being. That's the problem, okay. and that's cheap. And that's what I'm saying. That's dehumanize. That is dehumanizing to the only main African American character in the film. Oh, correct, because he's and, not human. And, I mean, and, yeah, and, your and, your and point I, is well taken. And I know he's not human, but my my my, my problem is. I don't understand why it has to be ha- why it has to be an African American. This movie was made in two thousand. That's not that long ago, guys. Sixteen years ago, not long. And we were st- and this was still mainstream Hollywood. Um, so I mean, to kind of further the idea, though, uh, there was a great article uh, published in the two uh, thousand nine edition of uh, the Social Issues uh, said that uh, the powers of a, a magical Negro are used to save and transform, disshelve. I'm oh, sorry. Disheaved, uncultured, lost, or broken whites, because it's always exclusively white men, into competent, successful, and content people with the context of the American myth of redemption and salvation. So again, white, black people are only there to prop up the white guy. They don't actually have their own character, their own story. They don't matter. They are there to prop up the white hero, because he's the one who's really going to save the town. Bagger Vance is never going to save the town. He's there to get, he's there he's there to lift up the guy who is going to save the town, who of course is a white guy. Um, now it is this feature going back to the article it is this feature of the magical negro that some people find troubling although from a certain perspective some people would argue that the character is showing blacks in a positive light he is still ultimately subordinate and I think that's the real uh, big takeaway this film paints African Americans as subordinate to the real savior thank you very much Mr. Caleb Masters I might contest the point of subordination 
because there is a extent to which he's letting Matt Damon do his own thing, but he's also telling him what he needs to do, and Matt Damon would be better served to obey the instructions of Mr. Will Smith. So, I mean, but your point is 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 well taken, as, insofar as the magical Negro itself is a troubling trope. And uh, and what have you and whatnot. So I thank you very much for all of that. Before I get into my analysis itself, I would like to point out uh, just there is a, a thing that goes on in this film that is politically troubling, that is not okay. Which is as as Caleb talked about the magical Negro, and uh, as Alex pointed out, the romanticiz- the random romanticization, which is a hard word to say, it turns out, mm-hmm. of the South. And what I would say is three words, four words. Gone with the wind. I freaking hate that movie. No, you know what? I still like it. It's got problems. I'd also say Birth of a Nation, which is a movie that's got a ton of problems, but they remain important. Now, does The Legend of Bagger Vance measure up to either of those films? Absolutely not. Not even in the same ballpark, not in the same bloody sport. Okay, so I'm not trying to say that about uh, this particular film, but what I am saying is even though a film is politically troubling... Like, say, King Kong, which is all about black bodies taking white women out of windows, uh, which is, again, and drying, dr- crawling up giant phallic symbols and then getting shot to their deaths. It, it, it's a horrifying film if you begin to think about it in that sort of uh, framework. That being said, do I love King Kong still? Yes, I do. Am I uh, against the miscegenation of the races? I am not. So what I'm saying is this. Um, even though a film can be politically troubling, it can still be beneficial, it can still be of high quality, and can still be worthy of study and thought. Now, what I find to be most valuable about this particular film is its environmental stance. Robert Redford, as a director, is all about a man's interac- interaction, and it, overwhelmingly it is a man. Um, we'll say a human being um, just for the sake of being inclusive. But for Redford and his perspective when it comes to film, it's overwhelmingly a man and their interaction with their environment. Um, What you have to do in order to play the game well is to see the field and feel the turning of the earth. What happens in this film is that there are a numerous number of inserts in which we see mist over hills. We see sunrises and sunsets over oceans. We see fog over a golf course at night, in which we are understanding that in order to play this particular game, one must tune oneself with the environment in which one finds himself situated. That Robert Redford himself is an environmentalist, and that the only way that a human being can find a way to make their way forward in this game, which is, again, the rhythm of the game, like the game of life, all those cheese ball lines Will Smith has, it is by tuning oneself to the earth. This film is about saying, hey, if we're doing something that's hurting the earth, then we're messing up. If we're doing things that are helping the earth, we're doing well. If we're, if we're in the same harmony and rhythm as the turning of the earth then we are doing extraordinarily well as a society, as a species, in which we see the particularization in the character of Randolph Juna, played by Matt Damon. I would say this. The film is fundamentally, it's a Captain Planet episode. It's about tuning into what's going on on planet Earth 
and in so doing, working with the contours of the earth in which we are given, instead of trying to bend it necessarily to our own will, although we can do some um, cultivating. I mean, a golf course fundamentally is what it is a redesigning and cultivation of the uh, the uh, curves and hills of the earth into making a gameplay uh, possible. That's what Crew Island fundamentally is. But it's in harmony with what already exists. That human beings, we do what we do in society. We do what we do with the earth. But when we do so in harmony with the earth that we've received, we do well. When we try to sort of work against the grain, which is, again, I look to the that fantastic scene with Will Smith and Hardy when they're talking about how the blades of grass are going to fall up in the sunlight and how you're going to make a putt based on what time of day it is because the grain of the grass goes differently. Um, when you're doing that sort of stuff, you realize then, okay, so we have to fundamentally look with the rhythms of the earth. We have to, we have to, we have to fundamentally change the way we behave ourselves. And yes, we can do what we want to do. We're doing, we're bending the earth to our means and our, our will, but we're not doing so against the earth's own will itself. When human beings fundamentally work in harmony with what's going on with the planet, then we do well. Now, we go in the macro or the micro level. That's the macro level. We go to the micro level, Matt Damon and his circumstances with the war. The same thing applies. There is a world in which human beings do some terrible, terrible things. And we can be very, very angry that the terrible things happened. Or we can sort of bend those things and move on those things and begin to move ourselves forward as opposed to being frozen in the past. Because as Will Smith keeps on saying, the world keeps turning. Time keeps marching on. If we keep marching on and we keep playing the game, then we do well. And I find to be a, a very, very spiritual, in, a, in a, probably a, a more Buddhist sense. I know the, the film is based on a Hindu play, but um, there's, a, there's a Buddhist resonance there. It is if we keep playing the game with the rhythm with which we received, then we do very, very well. And in that, I find this film, again, to be very, very inspiring um, in how one goes about in approaching their lives. So that is the analysis that I would offer. Dear listener, we're so glad to hear the analysis that you all have um, uh, we, we would like to submit to us by those magical means of social media. I'm thankful to my co-hosts for their analyses that they have offered so far. But before we move on in our, our, in our show, we need to hear a word from our sponsors. Good Trash Genrecast is brought to you in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Have you ever found yourself yearning for the glorious moments of your past? I know I have, but we can't offer that to you. But we can give you the next best thing, The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness, a collection of the most shared, viewed, and favorited articles from sadmenforlonelywomen.com. The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness is available over at Amazon.com. Pick up your copy today. Well, the dream's in the ditch. Now the kids are all pissed. But it's not new to hate what they make you do. We now come to a point in the show where we must render a verdict. Shelf or trash? And then else or instead, I am saddened to hear what I'm about to hear. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what do you say? Show for trash, else or instead? Yeah, this, I mean, just throw it in a water hazard. It's not worth your time to watch. I mean, yeah, I know golf. Yeah, I know I know things. But yeah, it's really not your time. I mean, 
Maybe if you like golf movies and you haven't seen this one, go for it. But I, I don't think this is anyone's best work and by a, a great long shot. Um, a long shot that might be a hole in one. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just can't stop dropping these golf jokes. I'm a dad in a 24 year old woman's body. Double, double, that's a, that's a, that'd be double bogey for you. Double bogey for me. I'm oh, offended my. In, on behalf of all dads. Okay. Um, so instead, I would recommend uh, Remember the Titans. Mr. Masters mentioned earlier. I feel like Remember the Titans does. This movie, what this movie does, does it better and also has an interesting conversation about race. It's also very, very saccharine and smulchy and all that stuff. Um, and, mm, I don't know, go outside and play some sports yourself. That's about all I got. <laughs> Give golf a shot, guys. Seriously. Oh, yeah, golf I actually, is great. Golf, yeah. Like, you watch it, you see it, maybe it looks boring to you. It's like the most fun, relaxing thing to get with a couple of buddies and go golfing. I don't know. Thank you very much, Mr. Alexander Bohan and Mr. Caleb Masters. Shelf or trash, else or instead. You know what I'm going to do with this, Dustin? I'm going to lightsaber this thing through the case. I'm going to chuck it into the into a hole that goes to the core of the planet, and then I'm going to blow the planet up because I think this thing's a piece of garbage. So I am definitely going to trash it. Oh, dear. I just, I really hated this movie. And I, I gave it two stars on Letterboxd. The more I've thought about it since, because that was my initial review, but the more I've thought about it and, and, and read into the different analyses there, I'm really, it, this movie upsets me on a lot of different levels. Um, uh, instead, go watch a good golf movie, a really underrated, really underrated golf movie that's not that old. Uh, the greatest game ever played, starring Shia LaBeouf. Uh, actually, really good. It is a little schmaltzy at points because it's a sports inspiring sports film, but it's actually got real weight and real drama to it. And I really believe in the characters. And this guy, uh, basically, in that film, Shia LaBeouf grows up a boy loving golf and the game. And he sees his hero, and then at the end of the end of the movie, he ends up competing against like his childhood hero in a game of golf. And it's just it's great. It's really really good storytelling, unlike this. Um, also, go. Ah. Also, All I say to you, sir, is ah. Have you seen the the greatest game ever played, Dustin? I have not actually. I think you. I mean, it's it's pretty. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's a great great, but if you're gonna look at an inspirational golf sports movie, go check that one out. Um, if you want to watch something a little more lighthearted, absolutely have to catch Happy Gilmore because come yeah. on, guys, correct. Happy I mean, amazing. isn't that also the plot of Happy Gilmore? I mean, isn't there a, a magical? Uh, yes. Yeah. In fact, it's funny because played by Carl Weathers. It's funny because yes, I do love <laughs> Carl, Carl Weathers. Weathers is Chubbs. That's his name's Chubbs. Oh yeah. Um, well, you know it's funny because that movie came out before this movie. Movie, but this movie feels like a parody. Uh, I mean, Happy Gilmore feels like a parody of Bagger Vance, but it came out first, so kind of strange. Uh, lastly, because I do have a real saw, I, I did grow up watching, uh, as I said, a lot of inspirational sports movies. One that really stuck with me, I don't know, I haven't watched it in a few years, it's probably not great, but it really stuck with me as a kid, and I always liked it, and all this schmaltz and all this softy manipulation was uh, The Rookie, starring Dennis Quaid. It was a little Disney movie. I really liked it a lot. It resonated. It was a guy trying to, he actually was able to fulfill his dream like, like he, he 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 got to a point in his life where he thought he couldn't fulfill his dream anymore and he still did it i don't know yes it's the same problem but it's way better than this movie that's all i got dustin thank you very much mr caleb masters i'm going to say shelf it's been on my shelf since 2004 and i am not mad about that at all i love this movie a lot it's very fun and it moves me in ways every time Matt Damon tells Artie, Hardy, excuse me, that your dad looked at adversity in the eye and beat it back with a broom. I moved in ways I can't even begin to explain. Nonetheless, I like the movie a whole lot. Um, insofar as you're going to look at schmaltzy sports, you need to look no further than one Kevin J. Costner. 
or Kevin Q Costner. Oh, I know where you're going with this. And I'm going to say Field of Dreams, yeah. For the Love of the Game, yeah. and Tin Cup. But Bull Durham. Bull Durham's great. Yeah, yeah I like yeah. I, I, Bull Durham's good. fine. That's great. I mean, I would rather do the other, but that's fine. No, I, I it's, it's it's the fourth of four in that list. But um, Kevin Costner films about sport, do that and do it now. So thank you very much for listening to the show, dear listener. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash goodtrashmedia.com. You can also find us at goodtrashmedia.com just in general. You can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash, and we'd love to have your conversation and uh, feedback there. Next week, we're continuing Fresh, Fresh Prince February. It's hard to say because of all the Fs. F that. F Giving a lot of F to this stuff, man. There is a lot of Fs in those words. But we're going to look at Fresh Prince February, Will Smith, Focus. That's right, another F word. Focus, uh, a Will Smith film, and we're very, very excited to do that. Listen, dear listener, the movies are so much more than 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. They're about the conversation that you have with the people that you care about. So watch a movie and have a conversation, and we'll see you all next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandro Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genre Cast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com. You guys can't use any of this on air. No, of course not. Okay, all right. I I do think I probably have to start over again. Yeah, Yeah, you do. Ass hat.